Hi everyone! So as you may know already, we will be hosting an online watch party soon. We'll be watching Tall Tales on Tuesday, August 3rd. We'll meet at 8pm Eastern Time and press play together at about 8.15pm. Once the episode is over, we're going to stay around and chat for a little bit, so you're invited to that. Of course. And so this event is free and it won't be recorded. You can register using the link in the episode description, or you can find that link on Twitter, Instagram, or TikTok. And Drew, just making sure this will be your first time watching Tall Tales, right? I know of the episode only in the sense that I need to see it. And apparently it's very special. So I'm excited. I'm grabbing drinks. I'm grabbing snacks. I encourage everyone to do the same and let's get comfortable And let's get on the road or a sofa. (laughs) We hope to see you there. (laughs) See you there. Welcome to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast for fans who aren't ready to let go and newcomers to the series who are ready to jump in. I'm Drew Shulman. And I'm Marie Vigourou. In this episode, we're diving into Supernatural Season 2, Episode 9, Croatoan. Let's get this show on the road. Hi everyone. Due to the nature of this episode, we will be discussing intimate partner violence. If that's not something you're in the headspace to listen to, you can feel free to skip this segment or this episode. Take care of yourself, that's what matters, and we'll see you next time. Thanks. So true! Croatoan, what did we think? (laughs) First of all, I thought it was a very intriguing episode, and it was almost perfect until the very end. Okay. Well, I'm very excited to get there because I have to say like when I first watched it, I was really taken by the story. Like so taken that I immediately like the second that like I heard the story of Croatoan, I was like I need to look this up. I like paused the episode and I looked up what that was because I needed to know. So, let's get the recap done. Shall I count you down? Count me down. 3 2 1 go. We open on a very interesting scene of some people we don't know and Dean killing some poor kid only to find out that it was a Sam dream nightmare thingy and which means we're probably going to deal with another psychic kid. We don't or yellow eyed demon. We kind of do. We'll get there. We end up in the town. We find some of the people we know are involved. We try to look up for this one kid who was the kid that Dean kills. And it's all like things seem fine here until, uh oh, ritualistic murder sacrifice thing going on in the living room. Dean is right away with the shooting people who are all we can tell normal. And many deaths happen because of that. Dean goes to try to learn more, gets chased uh, back into town. Sam deals with the a few local people they become friends with, which is basically the, the this interesting man in town who seems to, I guess, be a hunter or a fisherman or an army sergeant, a doctor and a nurse who ends up turning on him and attacking Sam and infecting him. And then, like, nothing happened. The disease kind of just vanishes and everyone is gone and Sam is totally fine. But then we get the big reveal at the end that the boy that Dean was meant to shoot in the vision actually is working for Yellow Eyes. And then we get the reveal that Dean is going to reveal a thing about what John said. And that's the end of the episode. Time. Eight seconds. Wow. 
Wow. Okay. So I think that's probably like one of your longest recaps because, and there's so much in this episode. You know what? There's parts of me that want to point out like how it's a weird episode. It really doesn't fit the formula of the show in a lot of ways. I don't feel like we really grow too much with either brother. We, we kind of get a moment with Dean and the way that he's kind of been treating things, the way he's kind of been hunting. And then we have the obviously big ending cliffhanger, but like, Aside those two moments, it's really just a Monster of the Week episode? Yeah, it is and it isn't, but it is. And it isn't. (laughs) I'm glad you were concise. (laughs) Yes, and and precise as well, right? (laughs) Shall we look at the long game and see what important factors need to be... uh... Kept around? So in the long game, like you said, this is very much a Monster of the Week episode, but it's also not. So there are a lot of really important things that we do learn in this episode. I've highlighted three. We're introduced to the Crotoan virus, which does come back in season five. Interestingly, this is not the last time that some virus is unleashed on humanity in the supernatural world. There's at least two other instances that I can think of in later seasons. I feel like my instinct is to say like probably something zombie related going forward, because this episode really felt like a zombie episode or more specifically like a zombie movie almost. This is also the first time that we hear uh, Dean having a death wish. Very blunt way to put it, but yeah. And that's why I say that it's not really a Monster of the Week episode because it just... It dives in really deep to some of Dean's issues and some of Dean's thoughts and internal turmoils, I suppose. I feel like it doesn't. It alludes to them. It teases them. It makes us aware that there's more that we need to learn, but doesn't really tell us anything. It's really interesting that you say that because when I started watching this episode, I was like, yes, finally, this is the episode where we find out what John said to Dean. And I literally wrote it down in my notes. We finally find out what John said to Dean before he died. I formatted all of my notes according to that. And he doesn't. There's a cliffhanger. And I feel like what you said is very meta because that's basically how it feels. Like we're alluding to a lot of things, but we're not getting to the bottom of anything. Things are not what they seem. And I think that that's truly the theme of the episode, that things are not what they seem. Like, I feel like this is like, I feel like next week's recording is going to be, I'm assuming we'll actually get the reveal at the beginning of next week's episode. I'm sure they'll find some way to not do it, but I'm assuming they will not just forget about it. And we'll ultimately get the answer by the end of next week's episode. It'll be interesting to reflect on the rest of this season, knowing what we know. Let's move on directly into story time, because I'd like to get started with that, if you don't mind. Let's go. So like I said, I had organized all of my notes according to the idea that we find out what John said to Dean before he died, but we don't. But I would like to share some thoughts with you about that, because I the notes that I wrote were that we need to start by discussing what John said to Dean, because... The rest of the episode is basically built around it. And talking about the episode without knowing or mentioning why Dean acts the way that he does would be a disservice to his character. God, I want next week's episode to happen already. Like, can I go watch it early? (laughs) I mean, you can do whatever you want, but we need to finish recording this first. (laughs) This entire season so far, you know, like Dean has been acting out and a lot and in very different ways, whether it's through hunting, killing, just getting angry, drinking, etc. Like, 
we're we're watching him tailspin and it's really distressing and we don't even find out why in this episode but we're so close now that that's out of the way let's actually start with the the beginning of the episode let's start at the top so the boys the boys who have been fighting this entire season are fighting again the first fight that they have is in the car at the beginning of the episode we we literally have the vision they get on the car to get to wherever it is they're gonna go and right away it's the you you say I'm gonna shoot this guy. Well, you're not gonna shoot him. He's innocent. It's like I'm not gonna kill an innocent person, which I think is kind of our main center point of this episode. In the Dean is very trigger happy, albeit everyone he actually does shoot, we at least have him confirm that they're infected or possessed or whatever the case this is. And the one time he doesn't. He does eventually, like, you know, realize he's wrong and doesn't shoot the kid. In this moment, you know, that 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 moment that you're talking about, there's a moment where Sam is seriously doubting Dean's judgment. And we as the audience are pushed to do the same. I feel like it's really been a theme this season, as I feel like with each passing episode in season two, Dean has felt a little bit more quick to I keep saying pull the trigger but in some cases literally pull the trigger because he is so confident in his abilities we do see him make mistakes we do see him be wrong but in every case where he was wrong he is stopped before he does something stupid like just barely it's very like deus ex in the sense of like he's about to do something stupid and sam stops him and it's like oh you're right i shouldn't have done you're you're glad you stopped me and even in this episode where he is shot so many people dead at least he was technically right in every single one of them but it does start drawing the line of like these are just people with an infection this isn't demonic per se well i think that's exactly what's happening they're starting to uh, we're starting to see the lines blurring a little bit for dean and and we're gonna and we're gonna talk about that because i i definitely have some thoughts about it i wanted to breach something though in the story which was really interesting to me which was almost right away uh, i think it's right after they discover the the croatoan written on the pole Sam says we should call for backup and Dean goes, yeah, sure. Dean, who would never look for help or assistance or ask is just like, yeah, totally. Let's call for help. This this was also a little strange to me, especially given that in previous episodes, Dean didn't really want to talk to even even to, to Ellen or, or even Joe about anything. And whenever they're talking about bringing in the authorities, like they can't really do that because of their status as fugitives. Right. So. It's it, it was a bit awkward. Like, I understand the narrative necessity for them to be cut off from the world, but it's it was a bit of a, a strange moment. When they go into the doctor's office after after the whole scene with the, 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 the father, the, the mom and the, the, the child, I really felt like Dean was back on the whole, like, monsters are bad, they're things, they're an it. And like, this was a bit disheartening for me because we had seen him questioning this in Bloodlust. And we had also said that it was about monsters and queer people at the time. But now he's back to his Johnisms about monsters. So I'm starting to think like, what does that mean for Dean in terms of his views of himself, acceptance of his sexuality? Like, is he, did he regress? Like, what's what's going on? It's true. When I looked at this scene, I really did consider the, the like, that view on monsters, but I had not really drawn the comparison as we did last time to sexua sexuality. And I'm wondering if it is, I mean, ultimately, like, it's, it's weird for them to not keep them tied together, but in this case, it really felt like we were just looking at the monster side of things. 
again, given where Dean kind of ends this episode with his whole death wish, there's definitely a part of him that is not happy with his life in the way it is. And I think that is just sort of a regression of thinking he is othered and that he it would just be easier if he wasn't around, which is a very, very sad thought process to be putting anyone through or to go through yourself. So if any of our listeners feel that way, please ask for help and find someone you can speak to. And I think in a way, you know, the fact that he is carrying John, he's carrying John's secret with him, correct? And so I think that that means that John is very present in his mind. And as I'm saying this, actually, I'm getting like a flash forward, I guess, to season 14, where Dean literally has an overbearing presence in his mind. And it it just kind of makes me wonder, like, I don't, I don't, I really think that this was meant to show how present John is in his mind, not only in terms of like how he approaches hunting, but how he approaches himself and his own identity. I feel like the all monsters are bad is a very John thing to say, as you've pointed out. So I feel like he's still kind of lingering with this feeling of like, what would John do, which even if he doesn't want to. Can we switch gears for a second? Sure. As a queer man, Drew, I have a question for you. There's this line in this episode that Dean says, you are a handsome devil, but I don't swing that way. The reason why I really want to talk about this line is because it's often used to justify straight readings of Dean. But the thing is, like, one, we know that Dean doesn't always say what he means. We saw... We saw it in Skin, we saw it in Bugs, we saw it in Faith, in Route 666, in Shadow, in Something Wicked, in Dead Man's Blood, and we've seen it in this season too. So I'm sort of like inclined not to believe Dean in the second. Mary, I'm shocked. You would say that Dean might lie or make light of a situation to get the outcome he wants? He's never done that before. At no point in the season and a half that we've watched together could I imagine Dean saying something to somebody in a sarcastic manner to get the information he wants or the outcome of a situation he wants or even just to piss somebody off in some cases, nor lie about things to make life easier for himself. No, never. I can't imagine what you're fishing for here, he said with all the sarcasm in the world. Am I the drama? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I'm the oh. drama. <laughs> <laughs> Am I the villain? <laughs> I don't think I'm the villain. <laughs> but in complete seriousness, like I, I say it in jest, but like very much so. It's it's a line. It is literally a line. It's it's one thing to say something like, oh, like to have a serious moment with somebody like, oh, I understand you're hitting on me. I don't swing that way that's not like it's a conversation moment you might have with somebody in which case it's genuine but using it like a line like literally a line in that sense is pure dean just being dean you know it's the same way if someone came up to dean and accused him of being gay and he had to hide it from john he would probably be quippy and witty about it and turn the tables on the other person. It's actually really quite refreshing to hear this from somebody who's not super familiar with the show and the fandom because like literally this line comes back so much whenever somebody wants to say like, Dean is not bi. He says himself, he doesn't swing this way. It's like, ugh. Okay, really one line in one episode over 15 years. Even if it's something he's not comfortable admitting and he's being somewhat genuine in that moment, the number of moments we've discovered already in a season and a half where we see Dean is clearly not comfortable speaking about it and still feels like he has to hide it 
of course, when confronted by an absolute stranger who's probably trying to kill him, he's not going to be super serious. You know, we were talking just earlier about how, like, the monsters could also be like a... a his approach to monsters could also be a, a mirror for his approach to his sexuality. And I think that that line kind of makes that parallel or that mirror even more present because like, you know, he's denying like, Oh no, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not that. No, no, no. Like no monsters are no, no, no. So it just feels like there's like a, an ongoing flow of sub subconscious thoughts going on there. There's one thing that I'd like us to remember when it comes to the Croton virus It's this idea that once a person's blood is infected, they're not themselves anymore. And we hear that a lot throughout the episode. So Mrs. Tanner says, you know, one minute they were my husband and my son, and the next they had the devil in them. When Dean is about to kill Dwayne, he says, he's not him, not anymore. When Sam gets attacked by Pam, Dwayne says to Dean, he's not going to be your brother much longer. And so that's, that's something that I debated putting in the long game, actually, now that I go over this. Because this is important, this idea that once your blood is infected, you're not you anymore. To me, it's kind of up in the air because it plays with two factors we need to, I need to better understand, which is one, does this technically count as possession in a sense? Because we've already seen that in possession, the person is still there. Is this something wholly different? I would tend to think that it is different because they're not possessed with a demon when that happens. They're, they become demon adjacent to some degree, but they're not, they're not possessed. I feel like this is the kind of thing, again, given the end of the episode reveal we have and that conversation that goes on, I'm led to believe, like you said, we're going to see it again in season five, but I'm led to believe we're going to learn more about it overall. Maybe my thoughts will change then, but with just the information I have here and what we know of it right now, my thought process kind of goes with the once they've turned, they are kind of like possessed in the sense that they still have their memories because like obviously Mrs. Tanner, when she's begging for her life, is clearly Mrs. Tanner, even if it's just this Mrs. Tanner playing the part as if she were possessed and something pretending to be her. In this case, it is actually her, but her ultimate goals are to do whatever this new disease is making them do. I want to talk about Mrs. Tanner, which you mentioned, because I thought that that was such an interesting moment. Uh, so when he, when Dean kills Mrs. Tanner, he does it even when no one else was willing to do it, right? Like he didn't hesitate. Yeah, that scene really rattled me in a sense, especially with everything we we're kind of gone over the whole like Dean being a little too quick to pull the trigger literally again. I'm not, I'm not trying to make a point. I'm, I'm very much in the sense of like to act, not necessarily to kill, but in this case it is to kill. You would think he would have wanted more evidence than just like, I understand Sam saying, yes, she's clearly when infected, she attacked me. Like I, I believe you, Sam Dean should believe you, you know, you could just have someone approach her and she would swing to attack. And like, you could provoke her. You could do something and go, ah, she's definitely possessed. I don't feel like I clearly have to do this. It just felt like he accepted it too easily. So the way that I read it a little bit, is slightly different, obviously, because I know what happens after. And so I think that it's because it's, well, I mean, there you go. I'll say it. I'll say it. 
I'll say it and then we can decide what we want to do with it. Because the thing is, like, you need to understand this. Otherwise, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense what he's doing. He see, It seems like he's doing this for no reason, but he's not. Oh, my God. Okay. Okay. I'm so before wet. you say it, then, are you telling me that that scene will make more sense to me after I learn the secret? I think so. But you're not going to be thinking about it anymore. You know what I mean? Like, the secret is so I promise huge. you I'll be thinking about it. It's all we've talked about for the last... 29 minutes and 53 seconds i promise you when i go watch next the next episode to learn the dang secret the first thing i'm gonna do is go back to my notes here and go oh so you don't have to spoil it let me get a live reaction i'm now very excited for it but i'm now intrigued because that scene really rubbed me the wrong way and i'm curious to look back at that scene and if you want to give me any other scenes that you really specifically want me to look at I'd be very curious to even just rewatch this episode after watch after uh, learning the secret. Okay, so yes, so this scene to me does not make sense until you find out about the secret. Okay. <laughs> and it doesn't. Like I remember I don't know if I I don't know if I've ever told you this, but like when I first started watching Supernatural, I didn't like Dean. He annoyed me. He rubbed me the wrong way because I only saw him on the surface. Like I didn't really dive deeper into his character because I wasn't that interested because of the because of the open misogyny because of this because of that like I just I was like no 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 I'm done I don't need I don't need another person like this in my life so I just kind of like (laughs) really attached to Sam um and then it's only when I watched the man who would be king that I understood what Dean was about, and you'll see. I'm so excited for you to watch that episode. But anyway, so this episode, this moment does not make sense if you don't know why Dean is acting this way. And this was one of the moments where I was like, Dean is such an awful character. I don't understand how we're going to have like, because at the time I think there were like 12 seasons out or something when I started watching. I'm like, I don't know that I can get through another like 10 seasons of this. You know? <laughs> well, but yeah. Suffice it to say, I am now even more interested to analyze next week's episode and maybe even do a mini segment just on the secret. Okay, perfect. So let's move on. When he ta- when he says that he has to kill Dwayne, uh, just like in Sam's vision, like Sam gets really mad at him and he says, like, you're acting like one of those things out there. And it turns out that Dean, after a very tense moment, doesn't pull the trigger to kill Dwayne. There's like obviously a collective sigh of relief amongst, you know, Dwayne, Sam, and the viewers. And then when Sam asks him why he didn't do it, he changes the topic. And that reminds me of our discussion about Dean's incapacity to talk about emotional things. I mean, this is Dean 101. This is the classic Dean. I know I have something to talk about. I know I need to face this, but I don't want to. So I will just shut up. The way that you're describing it, which is absolutely fair, it sounds like it's a choice, but I'm not sure that it's a choice in his mind, you know? Like, I'm not sure that not talking is a choice. I think that it's a learned behavior. Like, I think he's been conditioned to do that. And I'm not sure that he truly has a choice in that moment. I think that's what his body is telling him to do. Because, like, he has to do it to survive. Like, or he had to do it to survive during his childhood. Like That does actually sound a little better it's not so much a matter of the i don't want to talk about it it's the this is not a thing to talk about this is not a thing we do i have been raised in a way that has taught me that this conversation is a no-no so i'm going to stop it 
But he does end up having the conversation with Sam over breakfast beers, might I add. Um, the best kind of beers. <laughs> the hair of the dog. And <laughs> I really appreciated Sam's like gentle firmness there because like we've been talking about how like he's slowly transitioning from being Dean's like quote unquote child to being his equal. And we've seen that over the last few episodes. And that moment like really shows us that Sam is stepping up and I'm just, I'm proud of him and I'm proud of Dean for talking to Sam. I'm just, I'm proud of both of my boys. Yeah. It's, it's a nice moment in the sense that it is a, albeit annoying cliffhanger for viewer's sake. It is a nice wholesome moment between the two of them. It is, you said it yourself, it's, it's Sam being very understanding of Dean in that moment. There is no, like force behind his words. It's very much the, I'm your brother. I ain't going nowhere. I'm going to ask how you're doing and I'm going to get the answer eventually. Like, it doesn't seem like one of those, like Sam throwing his tantrums of like, you have to tell me because reasons. Yeah. The way that he does with John, like he, he doesn't do that with like, actually he sort of did that with Dean at some point, like not in the same intensity. Yeah, that's true. That's very true. He has done that with Dean, but he, he doesn't there. He, like he, he understands that Dean is not John. And I think that Sam is understanding this, but Dean hasn't quite gotten there yet. I just realized I have no idea how Sam is going to react to hearing what Dean knows. I've been so concerned about learning about it and how it'll affect the world and how it will change views of Dean and Dean's actions. I never considered, is it going to be something that Sam is going to be not just upset by or affected, but the fact that Dean kept it a secret from him. Ooh, okay. Well, I mean, you're you're very close to like the dynamics that are going to unfold. And I, I'm kind of curious, like, we're so close to it. Like, what do you think the secret is? I feel like it's gonna have something to do with the yellow eyed demon and not so much what the plan is, but just that there is a plan and ultimately Sam is the linchpin of that plan and is required to make things work a certain way that the fact that this was hidden from him all this time and he had to kind of figure things out himself when he could have been told all this and better prepared for it. But also Dean kind of figuring out that if something happens to Sam or they get Sam, it's just basically the end of the world. Like that's why dying is suddenly okay. If something happens to Sam, I may as well just take my own life because it's just going to go anyways. Again, I'll find out in a few hours how close I am, but <laughs> you'll have to text me. I want to find out. I want to see. <laughs> I want to know. <laughs> I want to know. <sighs> Shall we move into critical time? Let's. So who did we have this week for our writer and director combo? The writer this episode was John Sheban, who wrote Skin, Hookman, The Benders, and Everybody Loves a Clown by himself. And he also wrote Scarecrow with Patrick Sean Smith and Dead Man's Blood with Catherine Humphreys. So pretty good repertoire. Yeah, those are very Dean heavy episodes, right? John Sheban gave us some really good by Dean content. Yeah, like right away, this episode made me think of the Benders for obvious reasons. So to have that be a connection makes a lot of sense. And the director was Robert Singer, who directed Phantom Traveler, Salvation and Bloodlust. So this this is why I'm saying that, yes, it's a Monster of the Week episode, but it's really not in the sense that 
it goes a lot deeper. And I know that I've made this big spiel at the beginning, like about how every every Monster of the Week episode is very important, but like this one is really important. <laughs> yeah, well, this one too, especially the fact that it doesn't really feel like a Monster of the Week in that one, the creature is kind of just this mystery the whole time. And also we don't really get a conclusion. Like that to me was the moment like, watching this episode and getting to the moment they're like, Oh, you guys better come outside and see this. And there's just no one around. And like, Oh, your blood is totally fine. Now. I was just like, but you're going to reveal what happened. Right? <laughs> like, like I'm yelling at the screen. Like you're going to give me something. Right. And then we still get the, the ultimate ending of, um, it turns out Dwayne is another one of the yellow eye demons kids and does the whole summoning ritual with the blood and bowl. And I was just like, okay, so the explanation is kind of it's a thing that you're releasing to hurt people and make people evil. Like, I don't really know, but it kind of took away the mystery while still not answering it fully. It's interesting, actually, because I told you that I I, I was under the impression that we would be able to talk about the secret after this. (laughs) And... When I, when I I remember looking at the clock, you know, I'm like, there's only like three minutes left. That doesn't seem like a lot of time for the scene that I remember. (laughs) And being like, oh no. (laughs) And that's why like literally sitting there yelling at the screen about don't give me a cliffhanger with this thing. And then like, okay, they kind of reveal it, but it's a little lackluster to then go, Oh, don't you dare give me a cliffhanger now. What's really interesting about this, Drew, is that Croatoan came out on December 7th, 2006. Then there was the cliffhanger. And the next episode aired on January 11th, 2007. <laughs> I'm sorry, Drew is having a meltdown right now, just so that you're mm. aware. <laughs> and like, I usually do my best to watch these week to week, just so I'm a little more fresh on the episode. Yeah, I'm watching this one as soon as the wife falls asleep tonight. <laughs> Okay, so I, I want to talk about the lore of Croatoan here because I told you before we started recording, but I was so taken by this. Like, I had to go look it up. Like, I think the first time I watched it, I paused the episode the second I heard the story of Croatoan, and I was like, I need to know more. And I started looking it up. What I remember from this, I haven't looked it up in a while, but like what I remember is that the lore that's presented in the episode isn't quite right. Like the Roanoke uh, colony wasn't wiped out overnight. Like that's not quite what happened. Did you, is there something that you would like to add? I mean, yes, they weren't wiped out overnight because we don't have any evidence of that. What we do have in the most for the listener who maybe hasn't looked it up or wants a quick recap, if they just want to kind of keep up with what we're talking about, European settlers coming to the Americas, they claimed this island, um, this island nation. Uh, there was trouble keeping themselves, you know, like to sur- there was trouble surviving essentially. And they kind of had to give up on the place. And then several years later, another crew tried to make it land there and they succeeded. And at some point they returned to see how this colony was doing of settlers and they were just gone. They just up and left. There was no evidence of a war or a battle or like bodies. It just looked like people had just disappeared. There's been theories thrown around throughout history of... Uh, you know, it was too difficult to live there. They migrated to other tribes. They joined other colonies. They tried to leave and they got shipwrecked or 
uh, one of the more common theories, the only one that has any kind of grounds and even then is very debated is they found other actual tribes of uh, native people to the land and intermingled and over the generations just, you know, kind of acclimated to the community and banished as a side effect. But you would assume there'd be some archaeological evidence. There would be tools they would have brought with them. There would have been clothes they brought with them, things that you would not find in native tribes unless they were gifted or brought over by settlers. And there isn't any evidence of this. You know, if they left on a ship, there would be certain signs of a crew getting ready to go. And also you wouldn't take everyone. You would go in small bats. So did they disappear overnight? No, they were there one day, however many months or even years later they came back and they were just gone with no evidence of where they went or how they left. Okay, so now I'm interested. What are some really out there theories about this? So when we leave the realm of the realistic theories that all have some ground but still have enough like there there would be some evidence and there clearly isn't evidence. There is, of course, the Croatoan written on a tree in the middle of town, the only evidence of it. There is belief that it is something spiritual, that it was basically um, pe- people native to the land trying to take their land back and setting a curse or a spirit after them. Again, Croatoan doesn't really tie into anything in that way. Like, it doesn't mean something like that would indicate that it's just a very weird sentiment. Uh, there is one other case of a tree with the word Croat written in it somewhere in, in a similar area with no real signs of anything going on, but it's the same type of tree. And also neither tree could be dated or uh, checked for age because they were too old or rotted. So it was, it's kind of one of those things was a lot up in the air. And again, We live in an age where even today, if something happened, you can usually find some sort of scientific reasoning as to what, how, or why, even if it's just theoretical. Here, every single theory up to this point has some kind of hole in it, enough to make you go, well, it might not be that. And so far, the only theory that has no holes in it is that there was a group of people, and now there's not. So it does kind of fit what we see in this episode. It wasn't per se overnight. We don't really have any evidence of that, but there was no struggle. There was no war. There was no pillaging. There was no, you know, like there's no bodies. It wasn't like a disease and people started dying. There'd be bodies places. It's not like there was a war. There'd be burnt down homes or bloodshed or some kind of sign of a fight. Nothing. It's also interesting because in the in the episode they say that like John thought that Croatoan was a demonic virus or a demon. It referred to a demon of some sort, right? Like that's that's the idea. So I guess that that's also what they're trying to. Yeah, I think that that's more of them playing with the show. But yeah, but again, we do kind of get the idea that John is kind of right as we learn this is some sort of demon disease made by yellow eyes from all what we can tell. To some degree, yeah, exactly. I mean, we'll find out more about Croatoan, actually, as we go, especially in season five, I think. Especially in season five. I'm excited. I like the idea of going back to something like this later on. Like, this is the kind of thing I want to see more of. There's one thing that I'd like to talk about, like, a bit more critically. So, when Mrs. Tanner tells the nurse and the doctor that her husband and her son beat her and tied her up, like, the first things that she hears are, like, I don't believe it. And... Do you know why they'd act this way? 
Now, I honestly think here that like we have to look at the context of time because this is a type of response that we would have heard often on TV in 2006 and we wouldn't have questioned at all, especially pre-Me Too. Instead of like criticizing that part, what I'd like to do is to just take a moment to kind of like chat with you and our listeners about how to best react if we're ever in a situation where somebody tells us that they're being abused or that they were abused. So first off, like center the survivor, you know, don't make this about you. Things like, I can't believe, uh, you know, I can't believe this. I would never have known or like getting upset or emotional, like basically centering your own feelings. It's not super helpful because it puts the survivor in a position of having to cater to your feelings and to take care of you. So instead, what I would suggest is to, to thank them for confiding in you. You know, you can say like, thank you for trusting me with your story. And you can ask how you can help, you know, depending on the situation. Maybe the person just needs to talk. Maybe they need a place to stay. Maybe they need a ride or, you know, just ask them, ask them what you can do. And if there isn't anything for you to do right now, make sure that the person knows that they can come to you if they need anything in the future. When it comes to this kind of situation, the intervention side of things, being the outsider trying to help the person being affected by this, there's always going to be the moments of what, what, how you can help them. And I know that sounds like I'm putting you putting yourself first, but you are asking how you can be of assistance to them. And that can either be before, during, or after. In a lot of cases, it will likely be the after, but you want to make sure you are there for the person throughout the entire process, as long as you are made privy to it. So if someone does approach you and says they're worried they're you know, they got into an argument with their, partnering things went a little more violent than usual and you're afraid it might escalate if something happens or you're afraid to go home how can you help in that moment and if they say you can't then like you said you make sure you know that i can't help as soon as you ask for it yeah exactly and i think that that's also really important to make sure that it's the survivor themselves who is the one in control of that situation, in control of asking for help, don't take any steps without their consent because that can put them at further risk. It's just important to look at those moments and think how you can be of how you can help. You have to remember what they are going through and how what you might think is the right move might not be the right move that they need at that time. Well, I think, Drew, like what you said is really important, how to be of service to them. And I think that that's what we should center, of service to them. Keeping that in mind. Shall we move on to our community comment for the week? So this week we have a series of tweets from at TrueColor412. She says, I have the exact same thoughts when I rewatched it recently. I think Dean's repressed bisexuality makes it difficult for him to tell if he is attracted to somebody out of actual want for that person or out of a need to prove something to himself or his father. With Joe, I did think his attraction was real and not in a sibling way, as some see it. She was his lightbulb moment of, I'm allowed to want this, but I don't have to want this. So he sees her for the potential they could have together, and respects that, therefore not rushing. He respected all women's boundaries, of course, but he was very forward with others. With Joe, he would take a few steps towards being closer to her and see if she would step in kind, which we never did. She wasn't ready and he was okay with that. Robin, thank you so much for these uh, these wonderful tweets. And honestly, I think you're so right. Like this is such a like a liberating moment for Dean, I think, when 
that moment where he realizes like, oh, like, of course I can want Joe. Like, that's fine. But I don't have to. Like, I am not being pushed towards women. Like, I am not being rewarded for picking up women because that's that's basically what was happening, right? Like, John was encouraging him to pick up women uh, and Dean was getting praise when he did. And so there's, like, this really strange, like, dynamic, I suppose, that sort of happened. So with Joe, like, she wasn't someone that he needed to conquer. She was a human being. Well, thank you very much for bringing this to our attention. And thank you very much for your tweets. I think I did say something similar when we first met Joe, but I like the way you've put it here. It really is a chance for Dean. It's Dan, it's the light bulb moment. I think that's the best way to describe it. It really is the moment that Dean goes like you can, you almost in that scene, see the switch get turned on of the like, Oh, let me put on my chauvinistic. Let me hit on women. Look. And then he suddenly goes, Oh, Oh no, I don't have to. There's no one to play that role for anymore. What do I want? And I think this is the first time he's had a relationship with a female character that hasn't needed to be romantic. And they're able to just sort of be friends. And I know where we are right now in the story, that isn't really the case, but their relationship feels friendly. And that's great for Dean. Yeah, exactly. Like it, it shows, I think it also shows him that there is a possibility for female friendships out there. Shall we head on down to the crossroads? We shall. So Mary, my dear, what do you have this week for us at the crossroads? You know, I was really pissed that we didn't get the, uh, I was going to say, I'm like, let me guess your secret. Your, your thing would have had to clearly do with the secret, which I guess it can't now. So, you know what? I will go, I will go big and I will go home because we're going home anyway. But like, I, I wish I, I do wish that we had found out about the secret for the reasons that I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, because this entire episode makes Dean looks, makes Dean look like he is unhinged. And I don't think that this is a, a service to his character. So I would have liked to see the secret being revealed. So that I would have liked for that to come to light. Now that's a pretty big one. So I feel like I need to give up a lot on this one. Well, honestly, I think that I would probably give up the moment where he tries to, like, leave the town. As much as it, like, clarifies that they can't leave, it doesn't really bring anything narratively. I mean, what were you going to do anyways? Like, really, it's almost like a moot point of the idea of, like, let's, let's like, leave and go get help seems very not Dean. Uh, yeah, I mean, like, that's a whole other can of worms but like i i agree so i feel like you know they could have put like i was going to use the terms that they use in the term that they use in season five but like the the people infected with chromatoan virus outside the doctor's office and it would have had the same idea where they would have been trapped yeah you're right right you like really just could have, yeah there you go so i feel like the time that we would have gained there we could have actually put towards the secret and then conveniently also get rid of that one-liner now, I'm curious, without revealing anything, do you feel like there was a moment in the episode where it could have been revealed and worked well? Like, my brain wants to say when they were just the two of them left alone and they thought, you know, Sam was 
moments away from turning. Oh, what I would have liked is basically to have the reveal at the end the exact same way that like it is planned, but instead of having it attached to the 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 episode the, the next episode, have it attached at the end of this one. Which I mean, I feel like it's such a natural thing to do. They just probably were given the directorial note of like, mm, we won't be able to come back in a month or walk, keep watching. So no. Yes, that was exactly the point. So for mine, and again, I feel like this is going to change in a matter of hours when I eventually watch the next episode. But for now, I think I would have liked to have seen. I think it's the third week in a row I'm doing this. Less murder. <laughs> I think I would have liked to have seen a little more investigation into it. Like, yes, the doctor ultimately is able to determine there's something in the blood and it seems to be like sulfur and they tie it into demons and something's going on. But I would have liked maybe uh, like the first the first scene where he kills the father, I guess, kind of works, Mr. Tanner. But then with Mrs. Tanner, I would have liked to have seen them like observe more and try to figure things out and like do some research and at least like pretend that there's some level of like, we need to figure this out and not just start, you know, killing people aimlessly. Ultimately. Yes. I'm sure I'm going to learn something in a few hours and go, Oh wait, that's clearly why it had to happen the way it did. But I genuinely think with what I know now, I would have liked to have seen at least Mrs. Tanner's death maybe have meant more or been more meaningful. And again, as far as giving something up, I mean, I'm asking to get rid of death and, you know, less murders. I think it's a pretty fair deal already. Less death, more investigating the person. The only answer that I have to this is something that I can't tell you. Again, I think this is just like a sign of the times of like in a TV world where this was meant to be like a cliffhanger. and We can't really talk about it and no one knows versus you who has that forward knowledge that I do not affects the context of the show in a way that is major. So much, so much of this show changes when you watch it, knowing what happens in the end. And I think that's one of the more important segments or powers of this production of ours is the fact that I don't know what's going to happen. I am going into this as blind as anyone did the first time they saw it. So it does let us look at it from both angles. And sometimes, yes, I'm going to be in a position like this where I'm going to know there's more to know and that knowing it will change my views of it. But I'm still going to have opinions on it now as I did prior to learning what secrets are to be learned. You've been listening to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast produced by Rochelle Castellano, hosted by Drew Shulman and myself, Marie Vigourou. This week, we'd like to thank Twitter user TrueColors412 for her message. Thank you, Robin. Please help us keep the conversation going. You can send us a voice recording at carryingwayward at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube using at carryingwayward. Make sure to leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. We really love to grow our community. And until next week, carry on our wayward friends. Like you're the, the only thing I like Twitter for me now is notified. Otherwise I ignore it. And the notifications are carrying wayward, Mary, Paula and Vigigames. games. The chickens. Vigigames. games. The games. Oh my God. <laughs>